I'm just excited about being a part of the sport, continuing to, uh, you know, my love for running and, and the community continues to evolve. My, my, my boy, four years old, did the turkey trot yesterday. He loves to race and we go to the track at Point Loma Nazarene. And so, you know, raising that kind of next generation of runners and, and there's a lot of up and coming athletes. I think they're going to do some pretty incredible things. And so again, I think it's on us as the, the promoters of the sport, those, those media, um, you know, journalists, the, the, the shoe companies, the, the industry people to, to all take a, a look in the mirror you know, over the holidays here in 2018 and, and really decide, you know, what do we want 2019 to look like and what do we want 2020 to look like? I mean, we get to write our own history um, and change the game, how we want it to be changed. Um, and so I think that cooperation and, and collaboration and, and storytelling um, is, is really what gets me excited about the future of running. That's Dan Cruz. And this is episode 38 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week on the show, I've got Dan Cruz joining me. Dan is my former colleague at the Competitor Group, where he was the VP of Communications and Public Relations from 2008 through the end of 2017. Dan worked primarily on the Rock and Roll Marathon series. He attended events literally all over the world, and he has an interesting an informed perspective on the sport, which I'm excited to share with you today. We covered a lot of ground over the course of this freewheeling conversation, which took place this past weekend in San Diego, California, where Dan lives and where I was visiting for Thanksgiving. And here's a small sampling of some of the things that we covered. We got into Dan's career and how he got into the running industry after having no real prior experience in it or even interest in the sport. But we also talked about how that evolved over the course of 10 years, not just from a professional level, but also personally and some of the different athletic challenges that Dan's taken on since he first took the job. We talked about the power of storytelling uh, and why that's important for growing a sports fan base. We got into the ever-changing landscape of the running media and where Dan sees that going. We talked about running culture, what that means and why it's important. Uh, Got Dan's thoughts on why the sport needs more trash-talking and rivalries to help make it more interesting. Uh, There's also some exclusive news in here about the Carlsbad 5000, which is the world's fastest 5K that I'm excited to share with all of you, and much, much more. So if you're into running talk, you like getting into the weeds on things, this is the conversation for you. I'm not going to ruin it, but sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat, the one and only Dan Cruz. Dan Cruz. So we roll? Uh, are we live here? We are. Uh, we might be live. We might not be live. Um, but nonetheless, record button is on. The record button is on. Well, uh, good you afternoon. Are on, you are on. Yeah, you are on the spot here in Encinitas, California. Dan Cruz, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Well, good afternoon, Mario. Thank you for having me. And first things first, it's a, a pleasure to us- join the esteemed guest list of folks that you've had uh, from all facets of the running community, right? I mean, you've done a pretty outstanding job of showcasing not only some of America's best distance runners, Shalane Flanagan, Des Linden, but I think what's really unique about you know everything that you're doing on the morning shakeout is bringing all aspects of the running community and a word that I see you promote a lot is running culture. 
Um, and so the ultra running culture, the American distance running culture, the turkey trot culture. Um, and so there's so many different touch points uh, that the running world has with, um, you know, media and content and events. And, and so to be here speaking with you today, hopefully we'll be able to shine some light on how that's all promoted and how much fun we have promoting it. Well, I appreciate that, Dan Cruz. And it's important to me that I have a good mix of guests here on the Morning Shakeout podcast. I've had a number of top athletes. I've had some good coaches, uh, but also what I call personalities in the world of running. Some who are fairly well known, others such as yourself, no offense, who might not be. And behind the scenes, we like to say behind the scenes. Sure, behind the scenes. And I think it's, it's, well, I know it's really exciting for me to expose my listeners to someone like you who they may not know, but once they get to hear your story, they're like, oh, I actually do know who this guy is because he was behind the scenes of races that I've either run or pay attention to or followed in some way. He's brought out some athlete stories. So let's start right there and let my listeners know who Dan Cruz is. If you want to give a little primer on how we were first introduced to one another, I think that'd be a great place to start. I want to one-up you real quick. The great place to start is yesterday, Thanksgiving Day. I'm at mile 6.1 of the Encinitas Turkey Trot. And who do I see in the lead pack with the police motorcycle export? Or um, the police motorcycle escort. Sorry, my, my uh, slip up there. Mario Fraioli winning the 2018 Encinitas Turkey Trot. So... Congratulations, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I don't want to keep the light shining on me. This is about <laughs> you. So back to my question. I'm going to deflect. Well, uh, absolutely. I think we met each other back in 2009, 2010, uh, Boston Marathon Expo. Incorrect. You were a aspiring editor from a small daily in, in Massachusetts interviewing to be the... Um, Editor of Run Competitor, competitor.com. And where did I mess up? You're skipping a step. It was 2009, but it was at the Rock and Roll Las Vegas <laughs> Marathon. I was not yet an employee of the competitor group, but I was on scene to one, cover the race, and two, coach one of my athletes who was also competing and worked for the competitor group, Sean McEwen, who mm -hmm. may or may not be listening into this show. But it was there that I met you, Dan Cruz, the PR guy for then competitor group Rock and Roll Marathon Series. Well, 2009, that was our first year in Las Vegas. First time we had ever shut down the strip. Uh, wasn't yet a nighttime race, but it was still uh, a pretty extraordinarily uh, executed event when you talk about the coordination involved with shutting down all six lanes of Las Vegas Boulevard. And, and I kind of look at that a little bit as kind of the heyday for... You know, the Rock and Roll Marathon series and, and competitor group, which was, you know, for those of you who know at home, the company that bought Competitor Magazine and, and Elite Racing and really kind of formed, you know, what was the first conglomerate, for lack of a better for word. For endurance sports, sure. For endurance sports. And uh, so for me to be on the front lines of, of that business um, and then to work with you when, um, you know, it's so interesting in 2008, you think about Competitor Magazine. They didn't even have a website. 
You know, there was no competitor.com. Uh, you know, the way that digital media has just progressed in the past, over the past decade is, is fairly incredible. And so, um, all the, a lot of that was due to the work that you did, um, you know, with competitor.com and, and launching that website and, and also as an author of the uh, official training guide of the rock and roll marathon series. Um, so Mario, uh, has done a lot of work and, and put a lot of copy down on paper from coaching and athletic performance and and really been at the front lines of um, the sport of running. Um, and we were there together for a lot of events, whether it was uh, Olympic marathon trials or on press trucks at different races. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've been to battle a few times. Well, it was from 2010 when I started at competitormagazine.com, middle of the year. June 1st, I believe, was my start date on staff at competitor until I left in 2016. You stayed on a bit longer. So we had a good six year run there for a while working together, covering different events, telling athlete stories, which for me were some of the most formative years of my own. It's all about the stories, isn't it? Um, and I think that's something that we forget about when you look at the business side of the sport or the, the, the media coverage of the sport but you know we've I've often said and and I was in the the storytelling business and the in the media business and and promoting some of these races and and not what are traditional running markets a la Boston or you know New York the first weekend of November but it's the reasons why people run are the reasons why the media the press social content you know, we'll always be interested in, in our sport, in, in our community, um, because it's incredible. Um, you know, we're here in Encinitas, California at um, a colleague of ours, a former colleague, Steve Godwin, his house. They just showed a, the documentary, The Quest for Kona, as athletes, um, you know, were profiled leading up to the Ironman World Championships this year. But, you know, whether you're at the front of the pack, the back of the pack, the middle of the pack, first time, 100th time, there's so much of, of what goes into, you know, the running world, the running community, preparing for a race um, that we all share. And I think is really what brings our sport together. And, and if you can do that well, um, you'll have a good lot of success in the business. And that's something you've been able to do very well. Well, I think there's a lot of inspiration in everyone's story. There's a level of relatability that I think we have a responsibility as storytellers to, to bring out those of us who have been around the front of the sport while it's great on its own and they're incredible athletes and they have great stories, but to connect them with the folks who are finishing behind and showing that there are a lot more similarities and there are differences, which is one of my main objectives with the morning shakeout. And I do think we have a very important role in doing that. And you did a lot of that while you were the PR director for the Rock and Roll Marathon series at the competitor group. And I really want to keep this about you and start with your introduction to running, because I know when you started at the competitor group as a PR guy, you were not a runner. You didn't know hardly, I mean, you hardly knew anything about the sport itself. Hey, 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 hey. I want to bet in college uh, for a St. Patrick's Day 5K and uh, 50 bucks if I could finish this 5K and, and I nailed it. So thank you, Noah Grassi, for uh, for making that wager at a, at a keg party in college. But how did yeah. you get started at the competitor group? How did you take this role as the PR director for the world's largest race series without really having much knowledge or experience in the sport itself well it's interesting um at the time it was 2008 
my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Amy Cruz, and I were training for Rock and Roll San Diego. And yeah, I did not know the first thing about running. The only connection I really had to professional running is my mother was a PE teacher and she had Evelyn Ashford in her sophomore PE class way back in the seventies. Um, and so I, I knew a little bit, you know, my experience to running was just like most people, um, every four years during the Olympics, whether it's Carl Lewis in the long jump or Michael Johnson in his gold shoes in Atlanta, you kind of gather around the TV during the Olympic games. And, and that's how you, you, you see running or you see it, you know, like I said, with the, the community 5k, the Turkey trots, you know, those sorts of things. But, um, competitor group was a pretty, uh, new company and a new concept. And I think they were looking for somebody who, you know, wasn't necessarily plugged into the sport and, um, the times and, and, you know, just pushing out the results after a race. And they were looking to, to kind of reach more people in, in non-traditional ways. And, and how do we grow, um, the sport to, to get to other channels and bring more people in. And so I was, um, had formerly worked with a gentleman by the name of Bruce Walton, um, who was Bill Walton's brother. And we were at working at a PR agency right after college. And Bruce got a job with Elite Racing doing some sponsorship sales. And when they needed a, a new PR person, he he recommended me, hey, I know a guy. And I was 26 years old at the time. And if I would have known I was the only candidate, I would have negotiated a much better salary. And this was 2008, I believe. Yeah, 2008. So I was the first employee hired uh, by a competitor group when they put the magazines and the events and, and that business together. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit because one of... The things that I have been most amazed with by you, knowing your background, that you weren't someone who came from some other race or who ran in college, who had this deep appreciation for the sport. You developed it. You educated yourself. In some regards, you had to, but you got to know who the top athletes were, what the top races were. You became fans of these people. You started putting their stories out. How did you kickstart that when you took this? position? Was some of it out of necessity? Or once you started getting exposed to these athletes and their stories, you wanted to dig further into them yourself? Well, there's a couple of different parts to that. You know, A, you're right. The first rock and roll marathon in San Diego that I ever worked, I had no idea who Frank Shorter was. And here's the godfather of American distance running and Olympic marathon gold medalist, co-founder of the rock and roll series. And and I didn't let him on the press truck. So there was a little bit of a hubbaloo uh, when I got back into the office on Monday about Frank Shorter not getting on the, the VIP press truck. Um, but you're right. It, it took a little bit of education because I think, you know, there's obviously some challenges with, with, with distance running, um, you know, in terms of a, a mainstream consumer sport. We talk about the Olympics every four years, but the, you know, most of the best distance runners only race in marquee events once or twice, maybe three times a year. Um, so to really kind of tell their stories and, and showcase who these athletes were, um, you know, was something that took a lot of education and, and you really had to work at and, you know, follow along Monday morning to see what the results were and, and watch the different press releases that the, the majors were sending out to see what the storylines were, who's going to be competing. Oh, is he going to run Philadelphia as he gets ready for, for New York? Um, and, but then when you're, when you're on the press truck and, and you just see 
the level of athlete um, and how they compete, how they conduct themselves, it's not a whole lot different than any of the major, you know, stick and ball sports. I mean, the work that an athlete like Meb puts in or, or Ryan Hall. And um, these were some of the big names back with the Mammoth Track Club in, in 2008. And, and to just see their stature at a race expo um, and, and everything that they do, uh, it, it was exciting. And it, it was fun for me to, you know, someone who grew up playing a lot of sports um, to kind of be associated with some of these Olympians. And, and really, you know, help tell their story. And what did that do for you and your running? Because as you said, you're training for Rock and Roll San Diego before you started working for the company. But since then, you've gone on to run half marathons, major marathon debut, just ran New York a few weeks ago. How did being around the sport on a day-to-day basis and these athletes on a very regular basis inspire you to take on some of your own challenges in a negative way, to be honest with you. Um, well, first things first, they really loved that I was training for the rock and roll marathon during the job interview process. And then three weeks into the gig, they said, well, well, you can't run. You're, you're working. So, oh, darn, uh, my wife, I said, I won't be able to run with you. And she's going, what, what, what do you mean? I have to work. But, yeah, I mean, it was it was tough for me, and it's certainly being on so many press trucks, and and you always kind of have this view of yourself as an athlete and and what you think you can do, and then to experience my first marathon, which was in London in 2011, um, and not knowing anything about pacing or negative splits, and and just kind of going for it, but to you know have the extreme prototypical bonk, if you will. Um, and, you know, growing up playing basketball and soccer and all of these sports and never not being able to run, you know, mile 18 of the London Marathon, I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. I, I could not run. I had broken down so much and it just gave me such a tremendous respect and appreciation for not only what the, you know, the East African athletes or the Olympians were doing, you know, on these press trucks at the front of these races, but what the 330 marathoners going through, what the four hour marathoners going through. You know, I kind of hobbled across the finish line in 419 and, and I'm going, wow, these, you know, these rock and roll athletes, these are my people, you know, this is where I belong. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the false expectations, um, certainly played a factor in terms of, you know, working at the front end of the sport. Uh, but the, the marathon is the almighty equalizer and, and, uh, you know, I've definitely be, been humbled uh, by putting on a race number and, uh, and towing the start line, that's for sure. Now that you've moved on from Rock and Roll Marathon Series, which you did in the last year or so, you're still running and it's still a big part of your lifestyle. I guess what I'm most interested in is when did that flip for you during your time at the competitor group? Well, I mean, the running community is such a tremendous community. Um you know, running New York just a couple of weeks ago, being on that bus from the Staten Island Ferry Terminal to the start line and and just looking at the different people who were on the bus. It just kind of renewed your appreciation for for what we do and 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 what happens at some of these races, um, you know, weekend in and weekend out. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're in the business of running and you're concerned with things like how many bananas do we have, T-shirt orders, registration, uh, you know, some of the economics of, of operating an event or, or, or operating a media organization and, and trying to make those numbers work. 
um, you know, just to be there from a participant and, and really, again, see those stories uh, and the reasons why people were running. And, and it just makes you feel so good. Um, you know, there's no better shape than, than marathon shape. Uh, everybody who's listening knows that when you're training for a race and, and you start to catch that groove and, and 10 mile runs feel no different than a three mile run two months ago. Uh, you know, that, that health and wellness, uh, that healthy active lifestyle, um, is something that everybody, you know, I think yearns for and, and, and wants to achieve. And, and there's so many opportunities for distractions in our society with technology and unhealthy diets and, and, and extracurricular fun, um, that when you're, when you're dialed in and, and you're training for a race, um, it just, it, it gives you that reason to get out of bed and, and an opportunity to make the right decisions in life. Um, when there are so many other opportunities to make bad decisions or, or take the shortcut, um, there are no shortcuts between mile one and mile 26.2. So, um, it really is a, a metaphor. And, and I think it's something that, that I'll be involved with, um, you know, throughout my lifetime. Yeah. And it was amazing to see that flip switch in you because all of a sudden you were showing up to morning runs every Tuesday. We were going on long runs in Virginia beach, uh, mm-hmm. on a race weekend, which is not a really easy thing to deprivation do. training. Dep- that was deprivation training, training as, in a we, as we called it. That is another episode for another day. Um, <laughs> but it was amazing to see that transformation in you, which I think is one of the most inspiring things about our sport and shows the power of our sport to transform someone. Well, and I think, you know, working on the on the event side of things where, you know, you're up early, you're rolling up banners, you're meeting the weatherman at the finish line at four o'clock in the morning, putting on the Elvis suit. I mean, there's so many aspects of, of these events that, that go underappreciated, um, you know, I think by the participant, but, and then to see so many executives who are making decisions and, and things where, the runner's best interest might not always be in mind um, because the investor's best interest might be in mind or the, you know, the, the Q4 goals might be the, the real priority. Um, you know, it's, I think being a part of the running community and, and actual running, um, you know, just help me with every aspect of, of my job. I think, you know, calling a TV station and, and pitching a, a rock and roll race in Savannah, Georgia, um, was so much easier to do because I believed in what we were doing. I believed in the event that we were bringing to town. I knew how it was going to impact the community in terms of just excitement and, and morale and, and people, um, uh, coming to town. And, and I think really, when I look back on the 10 years I spent working on the rock and roll series, um, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs and highs and lows, uh, you know, for that organization and that brand. Uh, but it's really those destinations um, that were so special and those cities that embraced, um, you know, those races and, and being able to travel to, to run. Um, that was something in, when I ran the London Marathon in 2011, you know, I got to mile two and I said, oh my gosh, this destination marathon travel to run earn your vacation this is this is what it's all about no wonder people want to go to new orleans or seattle uh to run these rock and roll races because it makes you just feel like you're going to town for a a big sporting event um like a final four but you're able to participate in that race and and you're a part of that event um and so i think there is something empowering uh, about being an athlete and, and visiting a city uh you know for the big race um that no question and um, again, is what continues to, to make our sport so special. Hey, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. And it's a new one, Path Projects. 
Path Projects is a new U.S.-based running apparel company. They design and manufacture technically advanced running shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear. Path Projects builds all their shorts as a component system, which means the shorts have no built-in liner, and they are designed to pair with your choice of Path Projects baseliners, which drastically reduces chafing, adds comfort, and personal flexibility so you can mix and match for different conditions. Path uses premium materials in every garment they produce, dissecting every detail to improve your running experience. For example, the shorts have three to five pockets so you can fit your phone, gels, keys, whatever you want, and they won't bounce around. The Path Pyrenees long sleeve shirt has a contoured paneled hood, a viewing slot for your watch, and pull-out gloves. There are a number of great details in all their products, so many in fact that it'd be impossible for me to name them all here. The product designs are minimalist without any big logos, no bright colors. It's a timeless design that's nice enough to wear to the coffee shop after your workout. They're just clothes that fit and they're super comfortable in a variety of situations. Path Projects uses a consumer direct model. Their apparel is only available at pathprojects.com. That's P-A-T-H projects.com. This eliminates the retail markup and makes phenomenal products at a great affordable price. They're hosting a contest right now for Morning Shakeout listeners. You can enter for a chance to win one of 10 Path Projects hats. They're super sweet. I'm going to be wearing one this weekend at the Cal International Marathon. You can enter that contest at pathprojects.com slash TMS. That's three letters slash TMS. And you can get a bonus entry if you follow Path Projects. That's at Path Projects on Instagram. My thanks to Path Projects for their support of the morning shakeout. Now let's get back to the show. Let's step back a bit and look at your 10 years as the PR director for the Rock and Roll series. And on an even greater level, the media landscape in general during that time and the state of the sport in general during that time. What were your initial impressions when you first took on the job in 2008 of the state of running as a professional sport? It's interesting. I mean, back then you had, you know, reporters like Dick Patrick at USA Today, or uh, I worked with a gentleman we both did, Burt Rosenthal, who was a, a legend with the AP and track and field in the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, even writers like at the Arizona Republic, Jeff Medcalf or San Diego Union Tribune, Don Norcross, who were, you know, covering endurance sports, Olympic sports, you know, on a regular basis. And, you know, fortunately or, or not fortunately, um, the dynamics of the, the media business have changed where, you know, newspapers were under more pressure than ever. Craigslist stole all their classified advertising. More people were consuming their information online. And and it was interesting to me. You know, for a while there, we were going into cities, you know, Seattle or Denver that were two newspaper towns. You know, the Seattle PI and the Seattle Times and the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News. And within weeks after announcing our event, the second paper in town, you know, shuttered its doors. And I'm going, what kind of effect am I having on the media markets around the country? And so... Um, but I think with every, the evolution creates more opportunity. Um, you look at how it used to be with, you know, you're fighting for column inches. Oh, we don't think we can get that in the, in the print edition. Um, but now that everything is so digital driven, there's never been more opportunity to, to tell stories. I mean, I feel like word counts are almost non-existent. You know, if the copy's good, um, it could be 800 words, 1,000 words, whereas, um, you know, back then it you know might have to be 200 words and you couldn't fit in some of the quotes or the, the title sponsors um, into the article. And so um, it was interesting 
the the one thing about I will say, and I, I used to joke with our friend Mark Davis at the at the BAA, um, you know, some of the major marathons, if you will, and, and I even saw that in you know being in New York and, and London this year, you know, they do have such an informed endemic media with all the the the, the track and field journalists who know who these athletes are and they know they're going to be doing X amount of stories. Um, whereas, you know, I've been on a press truck with an intern who's riding for the Philadelphia daily news and we get to the finish line. And his question is how far was that half marathon? And so, um, you know, really having to, to play offense, I think, and to, to pitch stories and to, you know, try to fight for coverage. You know, I was very competitive, um, as a publicity guy because, I didn't just want to be on the front page of the sports section. I wanted to be on the front page of the front page. Um, and you, it was all about timing and relationships. And I think, you know, we're, it's a people business that we're in, you know, runners are people, media professionals are people, our sponsors are people. Um, and, and so really developing those relationships and, and utilizing those for the, the best interest of the success for our events and our brands, um, was something that, that kind of came naturally to me. Well, rock and roll had, a lot of events eventually. I mean, yeah, I remember even when I started in 2010, from the time I left in 2016, I think it had quadrupled in size, if not even more than that. In your role as PR director, when you were going to these publications in different cities or even publications in the running world, how did you think about covering the event versus covering the race in some of those situations? It was a challenge, right? I mean, we used to get a lot of criticism and we could dive into the, you know, professional runners at the front of the pack. And Oh, we will. Oh, yeah. And competitor group, you know, they made a lot of great decisions and a lot of bad decisions, uh, you know, during the, the 10 years that I worked there. But um, it, it was a challenge, right? I mean, it, because I think you do have the athletic and the sport part of the event, um, which is, you know, every race, there's always going to be fast people at the front of the pack. I mean, they're not all going to be Olympic 10,000 meter final fields, but whoever wins, you know, these major marathons or these, you know, half marathons with 15,000 runners is going to be a collegiate athlete or, or someone with some credentials. So, um, you know, that part would, would take care of itself. Of course, I'd like to have more Olympians and, you know, more Shalanes and, and Kara Gouchers and, and those types of runners at every race because I'm in the, the media business. And so that gives you more opportunities for stories and coverage, but really it's the spectacle um, you know, I used to say when all else fails, just send them the road closure press release, because if you're shutting down 26.2 miles in San Diego, California, and the 163 freeway is going to get closed, uh, you know, channel 10 has to cover your event on some level. Um, but again, it was a challenge. Um, you know, we didn't take any, uh, publicity for granted. We earned, you know, each and every article and, and really appreciated, you know, those reporters who were getting up early and, you know, working for six or seven hours on a Sunday morning morning um, to, to cover our sport and to put our sport in, in, you know, front and center to a more mainstream audience. I mean, the beauty of let's run.com is that they have such a, a targeted hyper-focused kind of, you know, collegiate cross country, you know, international um, athletics audience. But, you know, when you want to get some of that more mainstream people, charities were big business, you know, in terms of getting runners to race for charity and sponsors want to see tens of thousands of people coming through the doors at the expo. Um, you kind of had to go through some of those non-traditional channels. Um, and so it was definitely a balancing act. Um, but I think it was an act that, that we orchestrated, um, quite well given, um, you know, all of the, the stakeholders that be. From your 
position as PR director when it came to the race itself and the the elite athletes that you were bringing in? Sometimes it would be one or two and they would essentially be out for a training run and it looks good to have, say, Karagauchi in a headline even though there's not a field behind her. But in other instances, like rock and roll Philadelphia or even some of the international races, you would have loaded fields, arguably some of the best in the world. How did you think about that side of it and the importance of it where, as you said, on a, on a widespread level, sponsors and, you know, some other publications aren't going to care, but for some of the very hardcore fans of the sport, like some of the people who are listening to this podcast, the people who visit Let's Run, the people who are reading about the race on one publication or another, would you shift your focus in those situations so that the event could be looked at favorably in the eyes of the people who took the sport seriously? I mean, it was always a challenge. I don't think there was as much of an appreciation from new ownership um, at the time um, who took over rock and roll in terms of the role that elite athletes played in our sport. And I also think some of those athletes took their role a little bit for granted. Uh, you know, if you're paying out $20,000 to an athlete from, you know, who knows what country, um, who doesn't really speak any English when he crosses the finish line. I mean, that was one of my earliest learnings was being at the country music marathon in Nashville in 2008. And, you know, the winner of the marathon crosses and, you know, we had all the TV stations there and we're going to do a little interview, a little media scrum. Well, he couldn't say I'm happy to be in Nashville or, or, you know, it was a great race. He just, you know, didn't know English. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely think that the sport had to evolve. Um, now, it was a little clunky uh, in the way it did from the event promoter standpoint, because as much as, you know, athletes at the front of the pack or or their fans and, and, you know, kind of that running industry would like to think that there's unlimited budgets and, you know, we can just fly people in from, you know, across the country to participate in these races, um, you know, as an event organizer and the folks that are, you know, who operate turkey trots or, you know, community 5Ks know when you look at that line item of, you know, an Excel spreadsheet, and what are your budget budget items? Um, you know, you only have so many dollars there for, you know, prize money or for, you know, hospitality um, or hotel rooms and travel. And so, it was a challenge. I mean, I think we tried to be as relevant as we could um, to the largest audience possible because on many layers, we were kind of charged with, you know, promoting American distance running. And it was a pretty exciting time. Um, now, I do remember, you know, going back and forth with some running journalists who, you know, hey, we have Shalane Flanagan running Rock and Roll Chicago and she's getting ready for the Berlin Marathon in a month. And they're going... Oh, she's not racing anybody, so we're not going to cover this story. I mean, I'm like, what are you talking about? This is Shalane Flanagan in Chicago, you know, one month out from the Berlin Marathon. I mean, um, you know, LeBron James plays 82 games a year. Uh, Peyton Manning or Tom Brady play 16 games a year. That's 16 weekends where they're on TV and they're doing media interviews. Um, and so the running, um, you know, the sport really had to get out of its shell in terms of just going to Boston in April and New York in November. And so I thought we did a lot for, for distance running in terms of putting Meb in San Jose or Kara Goucher in Chicago or Ryan Hall in Philadelphia and um, and really having some of those big names in non-traditional cities at non-traditional times of the year where they can do social media or expo appearances. Um, or even that, community appearances, which I think is huge because how 
in what better way can you connect these elite athletes who are the LeBron Jameses of their sport with the kids who might aspire to be with them someday. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Shalane Flanagan could have went to the, you know, USA championships and, and Des Moines, Iowa or, or, you know, wherever. And there could have been 700 people in the audience and yeah, she might've got a little bit of a better workout, but there were 700 people at the rock and roll Chicago 5k waiting to get a selfie with Shalane Flanagan, uh, who were her fans and, and who, you know, really believed in her. And because she was there that weekend, um, you know, her profile only grew. And so, you know, it was definitely a balancing act. Um, you know, unfortunately change is never easy and you're never going to make everybody happy, but you know, you just have to do the best that you can with the resources that you're given and, and always try to do the best story. And so, you know, I'm a glass is half full kind of guy. Um, you know, I knew what it was and how significant it was to work with some of these athletes and and how lucky we were to have Meb at Rock and Roll San Jose. Um, because I always thought, you know, especially here in San Diego, when you have Amy Hastings and Shalane Flanagan racing your half marathon to prepare for the Rio Olympics, you know, that's the big leagues, right? This is, we're the big event. We are the major marathon. This is a world-class sporting event because we had the pros. Um, no offense to the, you know, the Encinitas half marathon or the Carlsbad half marathon. Those were the more community recreational races. Um, but when we came to town, uh, it was the big leagues. It was the PGA tour or the, you know, NASCAR of running. Um, and I think you need to have those athletes at the front to, to legitimize that. Um, and you don't need to have 40 athletes. And, and I think if you look at, you know, even New York recently, they've kind of followed suit in terms of their emphasis, um, New York Roadrunners on American athletes and hosting the U.S. 5K championships. And, um, you know, they might only have, you know, six to 10 international athletes in their marathon elite fields. And this is the biggest marathon in the world. Um, and, and then so getting them involved outside the race is hard to do because they're there to compete and they don't come in town till Thursday and you may only get one or two commitments. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. And so, you know, I do think there were, were certainly some lumps and, and some thumps um, that we took from a, a PR and, and media and marketing uh, component. But I think there were still a lot of other opportunities that we gave athletes. Um, you know, I talked to Scott Boz. You remember Scott Boz? Who was I a, just saw uh, Scott Boz a few weeks ago. Yeah, great guy. Chico you know, alum. Chico alum. 61-minute half marathon. San Diego State MBA program. Club. Absolutely. Still uh, works for a running store up in San Luis Obispo. And you know, Scotty Boz looks back on his career and he kind of told me one time, he's like, yeah, you know, I made a world championship team and, you know, they, in Korea one year, maybe 2011 world championships and he raced the 10,000 or something that was on at three in the morning here. And did anyone even really see it? Um, but then he won that. 2008 or 2000, sorry, 2009 or 2010 rock and roll Vegas half marathon on the strip with the, you know, the, all the marquees were showing the race. It was on live television. I mean, these were pretty big spectacles that we were creating in the sport. Um, and so for athletes, you know, who were kind of on that, you know, not tier one, but tier one a, um, you know, there, there were a lot of opportunities and, and we'd be all remiss if we're talking about professional athletes and elite athletes and running to not mention Matt Turnbull, uh, who's our longtime colleague, uh, one of the probably best people that you'll meet, uh, in the sport of running, um, who's still trying to make magic happen every weekend. Um, and so Matt was, was always one who, you know, took care of the athletes, expressed that appreciation for, you know, the, the work that they put in, um, and, you know, despite not necessarily having, you know, all of those resources, um, you know, he's still 
been a guy who's bounced back. He's doing some work with Nova, the Great North Run series. He's still working with Rock and Roll and and um, uh, the LA Marathon. And so, uh, you know, there are those people out there who are kind of keeping the sport going um, without a lot of notoriety um, or a lot of attention. But, you know, without them, it could be even in a worse place than it is today. How has the role of the professional athlete changed over the last 10 years? Well, I mean, I think when you look at social media and you look at the other sports like the NBA and the NFL, um, I mean, yeah, the reason the NBA is so popular is, is just how much they've embraced, you know, Twitter and Vine and Instagram and, and, you know, athletes like LeBron James and engaging with their community. And I do think you see that with the running community. I mean, you just saw Gwen Jorgensen in Chicago and she did a great job with social in terms of getting her fans and, and those athletes involved with her transition from triathlon to, to, to distance running. But I think there's some major challenges, not only from the professional athletes, because I don't think their world has changed that much. You look at someone like Des Linden or, or, um, you know, pick an athlete, you know, they're pretty much doing what they were doing five years, 10 years ago, aside from the social media and always having to be out there. Um, unless your name's Galen Rupp, you pretty much have to be on social, uh, to be relevant. Pet peeve, by the way, don't tag Galen Rupp on Twitter. I hate when people do that. He's not on Twitter. He's never going to see that tweet. Don't put at G underscore rep. Just type Galen Rupp. Um, but I think it's where does the fault lie or, or the responsibility? Not fault. Let's keep this positive. Where does the responsibility lie in terms of growing the sport and showcasing those personalities Um in the running world? Is it the organizers, right? I mean, you kind of have these two major conglomerates that are operating a lot of running races. When you talk about Ironman slash Wanda and you talk about Motive, you know, who does a lot of events, you have the world marathon majors over here and, and their kind of umbrella association with Abbott. Um, and that's a little bit, um, you know, race specific to Boston, New York, Chicago, but they do have an umbrella organization. And I know uh, they're trying to grow that brand. And then you also have the the associations, right? You have the USATF. They don't do a whole lot in road running to the best of my knowledge, aside from some of their uh, national championships or Olympic trials. Um, and then you also have, you know, the other kind of quasi track clubs, you know, Roadrunners Associations of America, but they're, but they're not going to be promoting the professional athletes. They're more community based and, and, and culture based. And so, you know, unfortunately, when things aren't going well, when ratings aren't going up, when registration might be leveling off, there's, there's always opportunities to, to point the finger and, and share the blame. But, you know, I think the big message for, for those stakeholders in the sport is, you know, there's never been more opportunity. Um, but the question is, can these powers that be, um, you know, unite or, or find some common ground on a, on a strategic plan uh, to, to grow the sport and support those professional runners um, and those professional teams? Uh, obviously, the sponsors and the shoe companies play a huge role. Um, and you don't have to look any farther than, you know, Northern Arizona Elite and the folks at Hoka uh, to see, you know, what can be when brands and athletes align uh, to create, um, you know, fans and followers and, and a team. Well, I think a big part of it is getting the athletes to understand that they have 
and I'm going to guess it's an unwritten responsibility. I don't think they put it into contracts in this exact language that it is your job to help Yes, promote our grant, but also to grow the sport. You can't really put a number on that. It's like, oh, well, you should have X number of social media posts. You need to mention us this amount of times and blah, blah, blah. And it gets lost because that's a very, you know, it's a very trackable thing. And for brands, they can see if there's a return on that. But I think getting athletes themselves to understand that, hey, as someone who is a prominent figure in this sport, who is winning races or at the front of races or at least visible at races, it's not my job just to promote my brand or the shoes on my feet, but to help grow the sport as a whole. And I think when you would bring in athletes for events, that was, you know, sort of, I don't know if it was ever communicated to them in in that way. No, I, I definitely look back and, and I, there was, I could change a lot of things about, you know, my experience over 10 years and everything that I've learned. Uh, yeah, there would be more opportunities to, to tell even more stories or, or do social a little bit better, but I'm going to disagree with you. I, I don't think it's as much of the responsibility of the athlete. I, I feel like, and I'm not trying to, to summarize or, or lump, uh, professional runners together, but you know, the, the, the fast people at the front of the pack and who have been running since high school and college and, you know, now they may have a shoe contract or they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do after college, um, you know, their job is to run fast. You know, their job is to, is to, you know, be the first one across the tape because that's where the glory is, right? That's when you become an NCAA champion or, 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 um, you know, a collegiate All-American. Um, well, that's how they see their job. Well, yes, correct. But you got to think when you're 19, 20, 23 years old, you don't necessarily see the forest for the trees, right? You just, you're looking at what's in front of you um, and trying to be the best that you can be because you might want to make an Olympic trials or, or the Olympics, right? Is the Holy Grail. Um, and unfortunately, whether you like it or not, a lot of those athletes are introverted. Right. They may not be the most socially, you know, out there people who are, you know, the life of the party and, and, you know, Snapchat all the time. It, it, it might be something that doesn't necessarily come naturally to them. And they don't teach social media marketing in college like they do history or English lit or, you know, what I'm saying. And so I, I really want to say the uh, responsibility falls on, I feel like the agents. And the managers and, and, you know, those are the people who have a pretty significant financial interest in the sport. And I think, um, if you're not putting your people out there and not only are you going to be negotiating deals to make appearances at expos or with shoe companies, but as an agent or a manager, I mean, you have to be helping out with content plans helping your athlete talk about what kind of things they're comfortable sharing on social media, work with your shoe partners or, or race partners to make sure that they're tweeting to promote these races. I mean, you know, you talk about the promotion and the state of running in America today. I mean, pretty incredible example is just a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas where awesome. They added a one mile race in the desert on the strip at night with like Edward Cesarek and Brooks put up all this prize money and they had all the Brooks beasts. And there was nothing about it online. I, I've never heard of it. Matt Turnbull told me about it a week before the race. I said, are you serious? This is incredible. Uh, and so, you know, there are opportunities, but you know, the athlete is supposed to be there 
to run the race and, and run fast. And yeah, they could show up to the press conference, do the social media video, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and I think most of them are into that. Very few athletes that I ever worked with said, no, I'm not going to get up at, you know, 8 a.m. to talk to Channel 5 News. You know, they knew that it was good to be on TV. Um, and they were in Philadelphia for a reason to showcase the sport and showcase themselves. I mean, a lot of them train in some of these very remote locations, Mammoth, Flagstaff, Eugene. Um, it's not exactly, uh, you know, New York City or, 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 or downtown Chicago. Um, but I do think it's those stakeholders uh, in the sport, the folks with a financial interest, and those are really the, the shoe companies, the apparel manufacturers, those event organizers. We talked about some of those associations. Um, you know, that's really where the opportunity is to, to tell the story a little bit better. Uh, but again, if it's not a priority, people have too much on their plate, budgets get cut, uh, you know, you can definitely, there's a whole litany of reasons why um, it's not happening in the same way that, that it potentially could. Just want to pull one part of that right out. And you said the athletes telling their story. And there are a number of athletes who are doing a great job at that. And I think those are the ones who are doing a great job, certainly for their sponsors uh, and for themselves. But they're also helping to further the sport, showing that, hey, the things that I struggle with after a race or leading into a race are the same things that you struggle with or, you know, the same challenges that I might have from a confidence standpoint same things that you have. And it's sharing that that builds that level of relatability and I do think helps push the sport forward. What do you think athletes in running, professional athletes in running can do to do a better job sharing those stories? Talk trash. You think I'm lying, right? I mean, I always thought the one thing missing from the Meb versus Ryan Hall, other than the fact they didn't race against each other all that much, was someone talking some trash, getting people excited. Look no further than, you know, MMA or, or you know, boxing's kind of past its prime in terms of a spectator sport, but... Look at what happened today in golf. I mean, Tiger Woods versus Phil Mickelson. Those guys had a $200,000 side bet on the first uh, hole. I mean, could you imagine if uh, if Mo Farah dropped ten grand on who's going to be ahead at, my, at the 5K with Galen Rupp in Chicago? I mean, that would create a little bit of a spectacle. That would create excitement, um, you know, because running isn't on the in the sports pages anymore. I mean, good luck finding an article in the USA Today about the Boston Marathon the week of the race. But as Tony Revis would say, you know, 15 years ago, they had a whole special section about Boston. Um, and so to get on some of those blogs or, you know, the dead spins or the for the wins or the, you know, the Twitter gold, you got to create a little sizzle. Um, and so, you know. Anthony Famagetti, you know, kind of a weird dude who, you know, was a pretty legit runner. But what did he say? I'm the fastest man in New York City. Um, you know, he didn't always necessarily have the results to back up his bravado, but he was interesting. Um, and so I do think there is an opportunity uh, for more athletes to be interesting and not necessarily play the safe card. Why do you think they do that? Play the safe card? Uh, I think people are just a little bit more scared of, of failure. Um, there's already so much pressure that they put on themselves in terms of their times and their workouts. Um, you know, no one wants to face the music, you know, when they get beat, if you will. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I think you can do it in a much more fun, jovial way, 
that that creates excitement. Um, but you know, when you look back at the old school, people talk about the glory days of you know Steve Prefontaine and and Rod Dixon and Frank Shorter. These guys were out there racing each other, you know, twice a month or you know three times a month, and and they wanted to beat you and they were going to make you hurt. And some of those great quotes of the sport um, are from that kind of heyday of um, you know of running. And so I I do think that you know, everybody's a winner. We all get a medal. You just ran a 5k and jeans at a turkey trot. You know, some of that has kind of crept in that, that PC world that we live in. Um, I do feel that's missing a little bit from, um, you know, today's digital media environment where you need to, you need creative content to cut through the noise. And it's okay to compete and it's okay to be confident. Those things should be celebrated instead of, being vilified it's a sport drop the hammer you know i mean i know gabe uh grunewald and jordan hasse didn't mean to trip each other or you know one of them got dq'd at those indoor championships but when we had jordan and uh gabe at carlsbad their next race you know that was a huge story you know i mean i think anytime there's a little bit of confrontation or, or a little bit of drama you know that's what makes the sport so great and so i think interjecting some of those storylines um, into the competition, not just, Hey, I've hit all my workouts and I'm in the greatest shape of my life. Or, you know, I'm trying to work through an injury or, you know, what are some of the kind of bland articles that you see going into a major race? Um, and you know, some of that is because we're teammates and we're Americans and, you know, there's that great story about Des waiting for Shalane to, you know, use the bathroom in Boston and then Des goes and wins, you know, that's incredible. Um, you know, and that story got the due that it deserved, but that's, you know, that's one story. The NFL has one of those stories every three days. Um, and that's just the media landscape that we live in. I'm sorry to get so passionate about, uh, Keep the, rolling, the, DC. <laughs> the content and the promotion, but, um, you know, I, I would just encourage athletes to, to put a little bit more on the line and, and not be so, um, you know, socially conservative. I mean, I think they're worried about losing sponsorships or, you know, unfortunately the governing bodies in the sport have really just kind of, I don't want to say dumbed it down is the right word, but you know, when there's controversy over what logo you're wearing on your Jersey or, you know, you got to put tape over a logo and this is the big to do, you know, I just think the general public checks out on that kind of stuff. I mean, look at a NASCAR driver, you know, they've got 15 logos on their jacket and their car and that's how they pay their bills. Um, and when running kind of, you know, gets, bogged down in the details over whether someone can wear what kind of singlet it's like focus on the stuff that matters which is you know breaking your opponent breaking the tape winning winning by how much um and just doing kind of cool things you know i always say in the digital content world um in terms of social media marketing it's don't overthink it just put cool stuff on the internet. Um, and so how do we continue to mine the sport for cool content and, and celebrate the, the running culture? Um, you know, I don't think anybody has that recipe. Um, you know, the, the internet and, and social media is the wild west. Uh, but there's an opportunity to, to test things and, and see what works. And, and because more platforms allow you to go live or, or allow you to, you know, to communicate with your fans 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Uh, I think there's opportunities there for people to continue to push the envelope, uh, think outside the box and, and tell stories better than they've ever been told. Because, you know, as I say, social media happens in real time. 
when's the last time you looked at what a brand posted last month? No one looks at your Instagram feed from June. You know, they want to see what you post tomorrow. And that's what's going to drive the conversation. And so um, I think that's the important takeaway is, you know, there's never been more opportunity in the sport in terms of promoting the sport, in terms of driving registration, telling stories to athletes, getting people excited about the Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta in 2020. Um, you know, those opportunities are in front of us. Um, and it's up to us, uh, you know, as an industry to decide who's going to take them and, and what's going to drive the most buzz and, and most promotion. Let's take that even a step further. Do events need to do anything differently? You see some commentary out there. I've participate in it to some degree that says let's change the format of a track meet or the traditional road race to make them more exciting and interesting now on some level i don't think we need to change anything i just think it needs to be packaged and presented better i'd love to get your thoughts on that well you and i i mean full disclosure i'm a road racing guy um the only track meets i've been to are um the olympic trials in in sacramento and it was hot and it was, we were in the sun and you can't uh, sit on the bleachers, yeah, which is why the, you shouldn't have them in Sacramento. Exactly. But Hey, Sacramento is my hometown. We love Sacramento, but you know, I, I think track has its own problems, um, in terms of the, the way that it's packaged and, and presented. I, I think there's opportunities, you know, just from the track that I've seen on TV, you know, where's the DJ, where's the celebrity, you know, I mean, you go to the Indianapolis 500, you got Kim Kardashian in the pace car. You go to the uh, St. Louis Ram, or sorry, Los Angeles Rams versus the Kansas City Chiefs, highest scoring NFL game on Monday night football history last week. But they still had the chain smokers as the halftime show. And so by incorporating those entertainment elements, um, you know, that was always something that rock and roll marathon series, you know, kind of had in a tip pocket, but didn't always play right. Um, you know, by bringing in pop culture and music and entertainment, um, you know, there is an opportunity to, you know, kind of grow your profile and, and increase your, your stature. And so, you know, I think there's a few things that, that the sport can do in terms of how it's packaged and, and presented. Um, you know, obviously I'm one of those people that would love to see cross country in the winter Olympics. I think it would help the winter Olympics. I'm with you on that. Um, and I think it helps bring running audience to the winter games. Uh, but who's leading that charge? You know, it's sure not going to be Tracy Sunland, who was a, a longtime executive with the uh, elite race in the rock and roll marathon series. But you know, who's kind of leading that charge. And then, I think the road running series is, is really going to have to, or the road running events are going to have to kind of look themselves in the eye and, and really look at the experience that they're offering runners. Um, you know, this year, I know the rock and roll races really have done kind of a, you know, reimagined or reinvention. Um, and I think the jury's out on how much that actually resonated with the running community. Um, I think you, well, we're going to, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities in terms of, you know, the culture of running and, you know, how that's, you know, embraced, uh, because I do feel like it's a bucket list sport. I think a lot of people ran a marathon in 2011 and, you know, barely made it to the finish line, but they checked it off their bucket list. Um, and so, you know, continuing to have unlimited amounts of people that are going to sign up for these races and pay $125 to, to run a half marathon, um, it's just like going to the mall or, you know, whether you're going to buy something on Amazon or, or go to the mall, you have to be able to market, you have to promote, you have to put yourself where the people are, um, and you have to do it a little bit differently, um, than they've done it before. Um, so again, back to my point of optimism that there's never been more opportunity. Um, I do think that the events 
kind of need to look themselves in the eye and maybe have a little bit more of a participant experience focused approach a la Coachella or some of these major music festivals that have insane signage, things to do for family and friends. You know, they're highlighting all these big names on the ticket, um, you know, and, and, and really kind of package and, and make these events feel bigger than just the annual weekend race. Is there a danger in a lot of these events, particularly road racing events, becoming or feeling too corporate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if there's a danger to that, but I do feel like a lot of the, the, I want to feel what's next, right? I mean, good luck finding a color run or a bubble dash or a, you know, night glow run on your calendar anytime soon, because I feel like a lot of those races have gone by the wayside. Um, I haven't seen a Tough Mudder or a Spartan Race or a Warrior Dash advertised. I know they're still in business and they're still operating these events. But again, those are very bucket list events, too. Um, You know, I feel like iconic events that roll out a great experience and an awesome destination that, you know, makes people feel good about themselves. Um, You know, there's definitely a marketplace for that. Um, because people aren't going to stop running. People aren't going to stop, uh, you know, being active. Uh, but I think, you know, people want a great experience and, and I think consumers are smart enough to know when corners are being cut, um, or when, you know, they, they see the details. Um, you know, they, they, they understand maybe what an event was or what an event is now, or, or when the shuttle lines are a little longer than they were, or, and I'm not talking about any race specifically, I'm just talking about, you know, the status quo of, of kind of the running industry. And so, yeah, I do think, I don't think there's a risk in terms of events being too corporate. Um, but I think it's more events need to feel, I think it needs to be more of a participant first, not investor first, or, you know, I used to say Excel spreadsheet budget first. Um, and because that's kind of the long-term view you have to have 10 years down the road, not, you know, Q4, Q3 down the road. And, and that's not a shot at, you know, anywhere that, that I've worked or anyone that I've worked for. It's just kind of the reality. And I, I do want to compliment the New York Roadrunners uh, and the New York Marathon because, you know, being there from a participant, you know, it was pretty flawless in terms of the the tactical execution. They've got it dialed. Yeah. I mean, it was <clears throat> the shuttle process, the start line process, the signage was great. The communication was on point. Now, this is the largest marathon in the world, and you don't get to be the largest marathon in the, one of the most prestigious marathons in the world without resources and a great experience. But um, yeah, outside of Eugene, Oregon, or Boston on Patriots Day or, or New York on, you know, the first Sunday in November, you know, I do think there are some questions just how healthy the running industry is. Um, and you see that with the track and field trials and, you know, that kind of bounces around all the time. You see that with some of the politics at, you know, the board meetings for um, USATF and, and a lot of these different things. And, and, you know, but these problems aren't necessarily unique to running. I mean, triathlon has its own set of problems, cycling, tennis. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a pretty dynamic world out there in terms of things shifting around and, and, you know, the give and take. And, and, uh, you know, I think the, the sport will sort itself out because if you roll out a good product that people want to gravitate to and that people have a great time sharing on social media, um, you know, that's what's going to continue to thrive and, and be successful because, you know, it's an experiential, um, sport. And, and I think putting on great experiences are the heart of it. 
let's put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it here in a second because I have something very specific I want to talk to you about. But we've mentioned in the course of this conversation, and it's a theme throughout many of my conversations, this idea of running culture. What does that mean to you? I love that term, running culture. Um, I think when you look at some of the 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 influencer community, you know, those that are doing it best um, are the ones that are celebrating running culture. And, you know, running culture is it's getting up early on a, on a Wednesday at five in the morning when it's dark. It's wearing a headlamp. It's trail running. It's hill repeats. It's, you know, all the cool things that aren't really cool, but you can make them cool and, and you kind of embrace it as kind of the work that's needed. And then also how running transcends into other normal aspects of life, right? You know, you kind of saw that with the beer mile and, you know, having craft beer at the finish line or, uh, you know, there's just all a number of different ways that running can touch normal business, normal, you know, family relationships, societal relationships. Um, and, and again, we got back to that point about health and wellness. And, and when you're feeling your best, you're, you're living your best life. Um, and I think that's where the biggest opportunity is something that you've done quite well, uh, with the morning shakeout, um, is, is that running culture, um, uh, I think that's where the content's going. I think if you can show running culture, whether you're Runner's World magazine or, you know, you know, running by trees.com or Instagram, wherever, you know, pick a handle. Get that handle right now. Exactly. Um, if you can showcase that running culture and kind of relate to different runners of all abilities, you know, fast runners too, and slow runners and, and middle tier runners, right? Age groupers. Um, but I think we've all been there with these little unique aspects of our sport. Um, and I think how we grow that running culture, um, it's just, it's authentic. It feels good. And I think that's where the, the kind of new frontier is in the, in the promotion game. I love that. And it doesn't have to be discriminatory. And the way I look at it is culture. This is who we are. And this is what we do. And if you think about that in the context of running, it's all the things that you just talked about. We get up early, not all of us, to go run with a headlamp or on. Or run after work. Or you run after work. Or you squeeze it in on your lunch run. But this is who we are. This is what we do. And I think if we bring it all back to that, you can see that running culture is not a a very pigeonholed thing. It's not just for elite athletes. It's not just for Joe Jogger. It's for everybody. And we all do different things. Um but I think it all falls under this umbrella of running culture. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in everything you just said. And I think if you can get a, a group run or a, a, you know, a training group run at your work, um, you know, that's a great way to bond with colleagues. I know that we used to joke back and forth with some of our coworkers from the finance department or, you know, whoever in terms of, Hey, are you going to be there tomorrow? 545. And, and just anything, it's, it's a bonding activity, right? Whether you're clocking 630 miles or, or 830 miles, uh, you know, you can run slow one day a week to, to relate to other people and, and then get your speed work out the next time. Or, or you can run a little faster than you might normally would one week just to, you know, kind of share that experience of, uh, of redlining it for a while. And so, 
um, yeah, I do believe if you're if you're doing running culture right from a content PR perspective, um, you know, again, like I said, that's the new frontier, and and I think that's where um, we see brands like yourself, uh, your media. I think we see Sidious Magazine is another one that does a pretty good job of, of showcasing running culture. Runners World just relaunched and has done a pretty good job. And different aspects of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so you know, we talked earlier about you know the lack of you know newspaper articles and and you know coverage on CNBC or, or uh, Mashable.com. But, you know, I think it's these kind of verticals in the sport um, that are going to be successful long term, uh, as Matt Fitzgerald tweeted a couple of months ago, uh, you know, to really kind of celebrate those aspects of it. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity. And again, there's, um, you know, as long as you're doing it in an authentic way um, that feels natural, you can really build some momentum. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of budget, resources, strategic planning um, to do what feels right couple more things I want to touch on before we wrap up here. We've got some big news to break on this podcast, Morning Shakeout exclusive. You are part of a group that just acquired, reacquired the Carlsbad 5000, one of the most iconic road races in the world, really, the world's fastest 5K. Tell me a bit about that. Running culture. <laughs> <laughs> No, the uh, Carlsbad 5000 is truly one of the iconic events here in Southern California. And, and I'm delighted to partner with um, a few of my longtime colleagues, um, Ashley Gibson, her husband, Travis, um, who have formed a company called Groundwork Endurance, um, you know, former um, competitor group, uh, elite racing, you know, staff members here locally in, in San Diego um, to acquire the Carlsbad 5000 from the, the World Triathlon Corporation. Um, because when you look at what Ironman does and some of their big partnerships with rock and roll and the world marathon majors, you know, Carlsbad was a little bit of an outlier. Um, and it, and it probably had been for a while, undeservedly so, um, in terms of, you know, some of these big races and, and these big markets that get 20, 30,000 runners. Um, of course that's going to get a lot of your corporate attention and, and sales attention and marketing attention. But, you know, the Rock and Roll Marathon series wouldn't exist without the Carlsbad 5000. Um, it's truly one of the iconic road races. Um, and I could talk all day long, so we better schedule it for another podcast in terms of the attributes of that event. But um, I'm delighted to be on board with with Ashley and Travis. I don't even know if the press release ink is dry. Um, you know, and really the big news is that, you know, we've partnered with Meb Kofleski. Um, you know, Meb is you know probably one of the most famous athletes in, in San Diego history and one of the most famous runners in the world. He's obviously goes by his first name of Meb. Uh, but it's Meb the Pele of our sport. Exactly. The Madonna of our sport or Sinbad, Cher, keep going. Uh, but Meb is, is on board as, as one of the operating partners and he's ran Carlsbad twice. You know, I was talking to him in New York at the runner's world party and Meb can name his splits from both races in 2000 and 2001 and his times and, and, uh, an athlete like Meb who's retired, retired, you'd miss my air quotes on the podcast, but, uh, cause he, I don't think anyone works harder than Meb in retirement in terms of expos and appearances and shakeout runs and, and furthering the sport, furthering the sport. My point um, so to have Meb on board. Um, and again, Ashley and, and Travis and a whole team of us um, are going to be operating that race moving forward. So I think the key message is to save the date, um, April 7th, 2019. Um, the good news is that the Carlsbad 5000 will be happening. It's 34th edition. Uh, but, you know, as you said, this is a race that, you know, going on 34 years, home of 16 world records. 
it's really just a, a celebration of running culture. It's that annual ride of spring in North County, San Diego, uh, an area of the world that's you know kind of the epicenter of endurance sports with so many world-class athletes that live in this region. Um, it's just such a beautiful event on the coast overlooking the oceanfront, uh, the partnership with Pizza Port, pizza, beer, running, the ocean, uh, the party by the sea. And, and it's a little bit of a throwback in terms of uh, an athlete told me one time there's only three things that matter at a race, uh, that the course is accurate, that it starts on time, and that they have plenty of bathrooms. Um, and so Carlsbad's a race where it's, it's competitive. You don't just want to finish. You want to run fast. You want to you know be in the top 250, but it's a big party at the finish line. And, and with the Junior Carlsbad race, with you know so many kids that are involved, um, it's just a unique a unique event. It's one that, that I've worked for the past 11 years, um, and I couldn't be more excited to be on board with the team uh, going into 2019 and beyond because uh, it's an event uh, that we hope to, to make great again. Again, for lack of a better, you know, analogy, did we have to go there? Yeah, exactly. But you know, it, it's no secret that it has fallen off a little bit uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, not necessarily from a consumer aspect. I think the the age group athlete who's shown up and done the all day twenty k or you know the twenty nine and under you know age group race probably hasn't noticed that much of a difference. Uh, but I think just from a, a prestige and a, and a stature uh, factor of you know where that iconic race was, um, you know. 10, 15, 20 years ago um, to where it is now. Um, no question, it's it's a little bit of a different event. Um, but we're going to bring it back to greatness. We hope to, to set some records. We hope to roll out an incredible experience. And we hope to celebrate running culture um, and really give it a local feel. Um, you know, we have a great Hall of Fame with, you know, all sorts of iconic athletes who have been a part of this race and, and industry people. And we want to re-engage with them. Um, we, we really just want this to be one of those special, event weekends in the spring in Southern California. Um, and it's something that that I'm excited about. Uh, I think registration is going to be open in December 1st. So check an Instagram handle near you. Uh, but the Carlsbad 5000 uh, is something that we look forward to, you know, partnering with the morning shakeout down the road. Uh, hopefully you'll be there to join us, Mario. I know you've run that race and a couple you've, times. you've coached athletes in that race. Um, but to have Meb on board to work with people uh, at Groundwork Endurance who are so passionate about the running community um, is something that that I'm excited about to kind of keep a uh, keep one leg in the sport um, and really try to grow grow that event and and, and you know kind of regain uh, some of the esteem uh, that it's had over the years and enjoyed over the years. Well, I'm certainly excited about that. One more question related to it, and this is to no fault of your own, but as you alluded to, the elite races there at the last couple of years, which that event, it's not the only thing it's known for, but it's really known for given the number of world and American records that have been set there, can we expect to see a loaded elite field again at the fi Carlsbad 5000? Yeah. I mean, a lot of that's just been economics, you know, uh, you know, where do you invest your limited resources in terms of, you know, appearance fees and, and airfare and travel and, and hotels. Um, you know, I do want to say that, you know, the age group races, I think, are what makes Carlsbad so special. Those masters races at seven in the morning or the women 49 and up, or 40 and up at, at 745. Uh, you know, those are the events that I think are, are what makes that race so special. Um, but yeah, 
Um, you know, I, I know there's a, a renewed focus on at least getting those American records back, right? Um, um, ben True and, and Molly Huddle have broken the American 5K records at, you know, I think, in Boston or, or New York. I'm not sure exactly where they broke those records, but but it's still home to the world records. Um, and again, I know having Meb involved and and working with Ashley and Travis, there's there's a passion for that front end of the sport and running some fast times. And so, um, obviously, we're going to be uh, investing in in the elite athlete aspect. Um, those kind of elite 1A college athletes, giving them opportunities to, to rub uh, shoulders at the start line with some of the world's best. And so no no question, competitive running and running fast um, is what Carlsbad's all about. And that'll continue to be a major theme uh, with the events moving forward. Love it. Last question. Talked a bit about what's going on in the running space throughout the course of this conversation, as far as elite athletes go, as far as coverage of the sport goes, what's exciting Dan Cruz about running right now? I was excited to see you win that turkey trot yesterday, Mario. I mean, uh, <laughs> me too. Yeah, that, it was my first win in a long time. <laughs> I mean, I think what's exciting me is just, again, not to be too much of an optimist, but you know, the, the opportunity in front of us, I mean, being at that Turkey trot in Encinitas, what other race do you go to where, you know, you over here at the start line, I drink my first white Russian at six 30 in the morning. And <laughs> you know, how about a shout out for the timing companies, right? I mean, those timing companies are so disrespected because they put so much work in the only time they ever hear about it is when people's results are wrong, but there's not a timing person in America who's not working on Thanksgiving morning. Morning. Because if you operate any sort of road running timing company and you're worth your salt, you're working a turkey trot because there's so many of them. So shout out to the timing companies. They're the real MVPs. Uh, I, I think that, again, people aren't going to stop running. Um, not to be the eternal optimist. I, I, I do think there's more opportunity than ever. And, and I'm excited about a little bit of the resurgence in, in American running. Um, I think we're going to see some fast times in Sacramento coming up at the U.S. Championships at uh, the Calendar National Marathon. And I know uh, you're going to be racing there too. Um, and so, you know, and going into the 2020 trials, I mean, it's wide open right now. On a woman's standpoint, it's wide open because it's a much more narrow field of like, hey, these 10, any of these 10 women could qualify for, you know, the next Olympics. But it's also a, um, wide open from the men because there's like 30 dudes that could qualify for the next Olympics. Um, so, I, you know, I'm there's more men than I can count that are between 211 and 213 right now. Yeah. I mean, I just think there's, you know, when you talk about Olympics and, and I do know the folks at the Atlanta Track Club are, are going to do a phenomenal job with those trials. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just excited about being a part of the sport, continuing to, uh, you know, my love for running and, and the community continues to evolve. My, my, my boy, four years old did the Turkey trot yesterday. He loves to race and we go to the track at Point Loma Nazarene. And so, you know, raising that kind of next generation of runners and, and there's a lot of up and coming athletes. I think that are going to do some pretty incredible things. And so again, I think it's on us as the, the promoters of the sport, those, those media, um, you know, journalists, the, the, the shoe companies, the, the industry people to, to all take a, a look in the mirror you know, over the holidays here in 2018 and, and really decide, you know, what do we want 2019 to look like and what do we want 2020 to look like? I mean, we get to write our own history um, and change the game, how we want it to be changed. Um, and so I think that cooperation and, and collaboration and, and storytelling um, is, is really what gets me excited about the future of running. 
Well, the sport is lucky to have you in it. I hope you stay involved in it for a long time. Thank you for an awesome conversation. Thank you, Mario. All right, that's it for this week's show, which was brought to you by Path Projects. Path Projects is a new U.S.-based running apparel company. They design and manufacture technically advanced running shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear. Path Projects uses premium materials in every garment they produce, dissecting every detail to improve your running experience. The product designs are minimalist. They have no big logos. There's no bright colors. It's a very timeless design that's nice enough to wear to the coffee shop after your workout. Path Projects uses a consumer direct model. Their apparel is only available at pathprojects.com. That's P-A-T-H projects.com. This eliminates the retail markup and makes phenomenal products at a great price. Morning Shakeout listeners can enter for a chance to win one of 10 Path Projects hats. I'm going to rock one this weekend at the Cal International Marathon. And you can enter that contest at pathprojects.com slash TMS. You can get a bonus entry if you follow Path Projects on Instagram. That's at Path Projects. My thanks to all of you for listening in to the show. If you would like to support it, the best way to do so is by going to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to audio and leaving a rating and a review. That's five little stars, a few nice words. It goes a long way toward helping other listeners discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. Thank you so much to all of you who have done so already. Also, I'd like to thank John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He is the man behind the audio magic here at the Morning Shakeout. He makes it sound as good as it does week in and week out, and I could not do it without you, John. So thank you. That's all I got for this week's show. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.